After all, there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there? Pas te dire ce que tu peux faire pour moi. Tu vas voir, c'est pas compliqué. Tu me parles pas. Tu me poses pas de questions. If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I'm your co-host, Becky Shrimpton, and with me once again, once again, again, because unfortunately my recorder messed up the first time and we're recording this all over again, is Danielle Ahau. Hey, Danielle, how you doing? Good. How are you doing, Becky? Good, good. You had technical glitches today. It took you five tries to get onto Skype. I'm having technical glitches. We're re-recording half this episode, which let me tell you guys, it was great the first time. It's going to be even better the second. Oh, I think I'm just bringing all the technical trouble in today, for sure. Okay, this is all in you. Did you have a a teacher in school who taught you about Mercury and retrograde? Because that was our dance instructor at university. What? Yeah, I know. Apparently, this was part of the curriculum, was Mercury and retrograde. And uh, now I know how to talk to artists. So that's good. Uh, And speaking of artists that we're going to be talking to today, I have Matthew Atkinson with us. How are you, Matthew? I'm very well. Thank you. Welcome back to the show. (laughs) (laughs) So you uh, directed a film, wrote and directed a film recently called Room for Rent, which I am a huge fan of. It's very, very funny. Uh, iTunes kept recommending it to me. uh, And then I watched it on a plane going home for Christmas. Thank you, Air Canada. And Cam watched the same movie. And both of us were like, this is the best thing ever. How was making this movie for you? Um, It was, uh, I mean, it was a dream come true to to, to shoot sort of a, a fully funded um, film with with uh, such great talent in it. Um, we had a great cast. We starring Mark Little, who I've learned uh, is a good friend of yours. Oh, kind of good friend, former roommate. And uh, if we see each other at parties, we have like the raise the glass thing across the room, and, like the smile <laughs> and nod, and it's great. And you know enough that I can be like, hey, dude, come be on my podcast, and he will. But uh, I am very much enjoying his television show Cavendish right now, which if people so have not I. watched it, it's yes. so good, isn't it? Great. It really is great. Um, I mean, it's it's fully his, his voice too. I'm, I'm sure also Andrew's as well. But um, uh, I, yeah, I think it's really great. But uh, you wrangled him among with like a cast of some of the best voices in comedy who have very unique voices and like congealed them into one hilarious film. You're working with comedy heroes. How was that intimidating? Um, it certainly was. Uh, <laughs> I mean, um, people like uh, uh, his the sort of co-star for Mark in, in the film, the villain is uh, Brett Gelman, who people might know from Stranger Things or the show Love or the Tim and Eric uh, show. Um, as well, we had uh, Patrick Adams, um, Carla Gallo, um, Stephanie Weir from Matt TV, and then of course the great Mark McKinney. So yeah, I was uh, <laughs> certainly nervous, um, but I'm sure anyone who's done this kind of thing before, you're you're so sort of mired in all the other details that suddenly it was, I was standing there on set with them and, uh, you know, there's no time to waste. So you just get into it. And everyone was, was fantastic to work with. So once we started going, it was, uh, pretty, pretty thrilling. And you know you've written a fantastically funny script, and I'm sure watching it come through the voices of these people who add their own unique character to it was just like, what is happening right now? That's amazing. Like that's the greatest thing is because it's, 
for whatever reason, I, I always end up writing stuff that is really dense with dialogue. And um, I don't know if I've watched like, uh, you know, His Girl Friday too many times or something. Oh, but that's the I, best <laughs> movie. It's unsubtitleable. And those are my favorites. Yeah, it's just like that's music, you know, but then you get these people uh, sort of lifting it off the page and it becomes especially someone like Mark Little. He really. It, you go, he, he'll, you know, he does a take and then you kind of go, okay, wait, did we get the right, because it, it, the movie is a bit of a mystery. So you have to be careful that you're getting the right information at the right times and yada, yada. Um, but he would just, he, you know, he's always getting the script, but he's adding little things and he's making it his own. And, and then, then to see him play with someone like Mark McKinney or Brett Gelman, uh, it was pretty incredible. Amazing, amazing. And I mean, you talked about the musicality of it, and you picked a movie today that uh, has a musicality. What movie did you pick? I chose uh, 32 short films about Glenn Gould. Which I cannot believe we hadn't gotten to before. Uh, Danielle, had you seen this movie before? I had not, and I'm really glad that you chose it because I watched it and I was like, this is so good. I was I was very excited to discuss this. And I'm sure you got super excited about the fact that there was a Simpsons episode named after it called 22 Short Films About Springfield. Absolutely. If there's <laughs> anything about Simpsons, I, I have seen it. Uh, so of all the Canadian films you could have picked, why did you pick this one? Um, I mean... Uh, Noticing that it hadn't been uh, talked about on, on your podcast, um, I found that uh, kind of uh, amazing that we could uh, go there. It's it's one of those films that, I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of Canadian comedies like Brain Candy, uh, Strange Brew, that, you know, those are films that I've watched a million times. But this is a film that I think when I was uh, in film school, uh, someone had recommended this and it... I was just getting sort of deeper into Canadian film and kind of understanding that stuff and a a big fan of Don McKellar. And just watching this, it felt so, I don't know, really confident and really original, um, kind of experimental. You know, I I didn't know much about classical music or the Goldberg variations. Um, Even watching it again today, I just found like it still feels really sort of contemporary in a way, the way, how experimental it is and how kind of, it's funny in moments, and it's but it's also just really, really masterfully done. I find it's experimental, but it's accessibly experimental. Like there's still mm-hmm. bits you can follow. Like it's technically chronological, more or less, in the way it sort of builds the whole life together. And then they just sort of insert little pieces here and there from different different forms of time. But uh, it's it, yeah, I think that's where the mastery really comes. Is that you can throw together 32 chunks of a human being's life and have them make sense to an audience on a broader scale. Still have a sp- Yeah. Yeah. So, Matthew, what is this movie about? (laughs) (laughs) Well, like you said, I mean, it. it, I guess you're right. It is. It is chronological. We we start with him as a child. This is the sort of a an impression of the life of of pianist and and conductor, Canadian uh, pianist and conductor Glenn Gould, Um, and we're seeing you know these little short segments all different. Um, it might be a conversation with a friend. It might be him recording. Um, might just be him uh, standing on a, a frozen lake. Uh, or there's there's documentary interviews. Um, and it, I guess, you know, what, what I love about it is that it just becomes this sort of impression of a, a real person's life, as opposed to, say, a TV movie where you're kind of doing the tropes of of really telling this, all these story arcs and characters and, and maybe, you know, embellishing this, this and that. Um, it, kind of like the Todd Haynes film, uh, I'm Not There, which I'm a big fan of. It, it reminds me of that. 
And it's it's a fascinating film, especially because it's a very unique way of looking at a human being's life. And uh, when this film was being created, um, Francois Girard, along with uh, Niv Fisher from Rhombus Media, the two of them got together and they were like, okay, we're going to make this movie. They went to Don McKellar because they wanted a, an Anglo-Canadian to work on it. And Don McKellar was like, this man's life is totally uncinematic. I don't think this is going to work. <laughs> and of course, they went ahead and made it cinematic. And then I think in 1999, so like five years later, they would go on to make The Red Violin together, which is possibly the most ambitious film ever made. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it, I, and I'm a big fan of uh, The Red Violin. And, uh, you know, I've had the pleasure of meeting Don McKellar and Neve Fitchman before. Um, and they're, you know, you can, they're fascinating uh, individuals themselves so you can see it, it's amazing that they did find this way to to do this because you, you're you could see it if you were to try and tell just a regular sort of uh, beginning middle and end story uh, with this kind of kind of character maybe it wouldn't be that interesting but I just find it fascinating like I could watch it again right away I could kind of loop it um, because you're getting so much of the music I think that sometimes in, in biopics, you just get little snips of music and it's it's obviously more about the life and the characters, but here it's kind of equally about the music. Well, especially as we're heading into award season and uh, unfortunately there is one film featuring a super group and a uh, decent performance and a monster of a director that is headed straight mm-hmm. into award season. And uh, when you see a film like that, which is sweeping all these awards, it's less about the actual story of the person and more about these giant set pieces and like these big highlight moments of the things that this human being did. Whereas this film, I think, endures more and is easier to watch because it's these little quiet moments of not only the life this person lived but how they affected other people it grabs the overall tone of his character as opposed to just picking specific highlights of his life you get an overall sense of his life and along with his music it's kind of nice there's a bit of a soundtrack that goes along with the film that's playing throughout but it's it's kind of interconnected it's not like a separate entity of a soundtrack and then here's the audio or here's the visual component. Mm-hmm. What did you think, uh, Matt, in terms of all the different shots that were used? The fact that he does use a lot of, you know, craning, a lot of panning, a lot of sweeping motions in the shots. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I really enjoyed that. Like it, it's, I like that it feels really well crafted. It feels behind the camera. Like it's very confident um, you know, there's not a a ton of coverage for some scenes. Um, it felt kind of like Gus Van Zant's work a little bit, like his, you know, the there's sort of the two parallel Gus Van Zant sort of uh, uh, film careers, which you know I'm a fan of both. But but these other films, like um, you know Jerry or um, um, Elephant or something like that, like obviously, you know, the subject matter is different, but uh, I do love this sort of like the camera's constantly moving, we're following them around, we're kind of observing a little bit. And yeah, you're right, there are a lot of like cranes. I guess it, it, it's, you know, from a director standpoint, it's probably also going like, okay, I've got a guy talking in a phone booth. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> how, how do I make this look kind of interesting? But I love it. Like, you know, the, um, there's the scene where he's talking on the phone and, and it just pans over and it starts to look out the window at Lake Simcoe. And then it just is pushing in on that as he's kind of coming in and out of frame and it just ends on the lake. And you're just like, oh man, that is, that's nice. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what we're saying here, but maybe on repeated viewing, I'm going to get 
get the point. So in terms of film structure, because you're also a writer as well, Matthew, how would you go about even beginning to construct something like this and deciding how you would represent each portion? I, yeah, I wonder. I mean, it, thinking about that, watching it, it, it's kind of, I find it so appealing from a creative standpoint, because you can kind of go, um, okay, let's look at what anecdotes people have told or what we know about him or what archival stuff we have. Um, can we um, can we shoot those? Um, do we want to, you know, what else can we do? Like, for instance, one of the shorts is just, um, I think it's a quartet, maybe, just playing one of his songs. And so they're just in a circle and we're just kind of like tracking around them. It seems very freeing compared to, uh, for instance, uh, the script that I just wrote, Room for Rent, which is, it, it's all dialogue, it's all sort of, there's a mystery that's unfolding, so you're also trying to tease out information, and it can get very kind of, uh, you feel a little cloistered creatively, mm. um, whereas here, it just feels like, from a, a filmmaking standpoint, I would love to shoot something like this. I feel like you just want to keep shooting and shooting and shooting. Now, I don't know about you guys, and I think, Matthew, before the uh, before the equipment crapped out, you had a ranking point about this. You feel swept along with all of this. Like, you feel like you're you're part of the action and part of the movement. And when I was watching it, I felt like... I needed to be watching this under different circumstances, that this is a film that I should have been watching in the dark with one of the greatest sound systems known to mankind, just to like really get the experience of it. Did you guys find that or do you think it transcends that? I think it transcends that, to be perfectly honest. And the only reason why I say that, too, is because when I watched it, I was watching it on my phone. I didn't have a choice but to watch it on my phone and I found it extremely moving. Granted, it's an iPhone, so maybe my, I don't know, maybe my dual speakers are pretty awesome on it, but <laughs> I, I definitely felt sucked in. Maybe I wouldn't feel the way if, that way if I had a flip phone. I don't know. But. Yeah, no, I, I have to agree. I, I, um, I was watching it on sort of like a computer monitor because uh, the place I found it was YouTube. I, I did think to myself, like, wow, it must be great to have seen this in a theater with, you know, amazing Dolby sound or, or at least surround sound or something. But still watching it here at home on my computer, I just kept finding myself getting sort of drawn in and lulled into the pace of it. And like we were talking about, the camera's just kind of, it, it's kind of matching maybe the, the character of the music or something, um, which mm-hmm. I found really fascinating too. They go to, there's that one about the the stocks he was you know played stocks i guess and and so but it's it's to a very sort of staccato upbeat song and i found that really cool well i mean we've talked a lot about the uh, the filmmaking behind it but we haven't talked about the man himself mr colmfior who i already blew your guys's mind so i'm not going to redo it that uh, colmfior was born in boston which is still mind-boggling to me i know <laughs> i just can't i can't handle it it's not it's, cool it's, it's very weird for me i feel i feel a bit betrayed i'm just gonna say but yeah. uh, but i Absolutely. mean he totally anchors this whole film and there's just something so grounded and mature about colmfior that even when he's acting like a total whack job uh in this in any other film that he's in, even in The Wrong Guy, you know, you always just feel so confident wherever he is that you're you're willing to be taken along on the journey. Do you guys think that aids the anchoring of the whole film, that it wouldn't be as clear without that sort of central point? I think, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, you think about this film, it, most of it is just him in a room by himself or, you know, uh, out wandering on a lake. So um, you really need someone to to be it's not as if he's 
in this film charismatic. I mean, he is in moments, but uh, you need someone who can be can have different facets to him and also just be really interesting on screen. And there's not necessarily a decline in the character. There's just more of a an exacerbation of certain eccentric points that could come off cartoony in a performance if they weren't grounded and coming from a real place. For sure. For sure. Um, yeah. I totally agree with you, Becky, that if he, he if he hadn't been grounded, that, yeah, it definitely would have come off extremely cartoonish to be directing, almost conducting that kind of diner scene where he's hearing all these mm-hmm. conversations kind of layering on top of each other into his own kind of symphony. I think he did a fabulous job in this. Despite that's a his great work. scene. Um, yeah. The, the diner scene, I, I just found like, oh, wow, it, it's just, as far as filmmaking, too, it's like you've got, you go from one thing and then suddenly you're in this and it's just about, you know, audio and and reactions and the way he's watching and the mix that they have in there. And um, I really, yeah, I really enjoyed that, that short. How do we create a film that's about music and is, is celebrating the music and then think laterally to be able to present it in the visual like they do? Yeah, I mean, I think that has to do with probably the the camera work as well. Like, um, you know, the, like I was saying, the pace and the speed of, of things. Um, I love that suddenly they just get into the sort of nitty gritty of the piano, just, you know, every little bit and piece of it and all the parts and how it's working and how it's playing. Even just that, I'm watching it going like, wow, it makes me sort of focus on the music more and, and go, what? how incredible it is to to sort of play this type of music. You're seeing what the hands must be doing. Because we never really get the classic, like, show someone's hands playing, maybe because no one could really do it like he could um, if you had to recreate it. But, uh, yeah, yeah. you never really see him perform. Uh, no. Comfior actually insisted that you never see him do it. And that was important to the filmmakers as well, because it's part of, one, it looks it looks stupid when people fake stuff. Do you know what I mean? Totally. Like you, you see yeah. some of it and you mm-hmm. can tell. Um, and there's also something, and I know uh, Kumail Nanjiani talked about this when he was doing The Big Sick, was that when you're showing someone who's like really good at what they do, like a comedian telling like jokes that are just killing, or like a musician that's like really taking the room in, how do you do that to affect the audience that's actually watching the movie and have them believe that that person too is the greatest at what they're doing instead of just showing them audience reactions. It's so true. That is the hard, like, uh, you know, my hat is off to anybody who can do that in a film, especially like, you know, musical performance to me, if you're not doing it um, live on camera, it's just, uh, it it never works out well. Mm. Um, I recently saw um, A Star is Born. Mm. Um, which I just didn't think I would like based on sort of the ingredients. Uh, and I'm a big fan of like the Judy Garland uh, version, but um, uh, I, it won me over just because I, I found like the authenticity of the playing, obviously Lady Gaga can sing, um, but that I think just goes a long way to, to endear it. Cause you're right. You can't just cut to someone and they're like, yeah, this is great. Like, uh, you know, the marvelous Miss Maisel, I find is sort of the same thing you're having. It's a really high bar you're setting going, I'm going to be this amazing comedian and I'm going to go up there and tell you jokes. Um, and I find that, you know, that show pulls it off well too. 
And there's something about uh, this one as well where they actually show you the balance. So like you see him, there's a scene with the hotel room where he's playing his music for the maid and she has she has a transcendent experience. Um, and then later on when he's recording in the studio and the guys in the booth are just like, well, this is good, you know, or they're not even really paying attention to the genius that's yeah. really in front of him. He's he's rhapsodying himself. I'm going to use that as a verb within the room. So you get this like, yeah, okay, it's not for everybody and it's not like he changed the world. So again, there's still a grounding in this. No, yeah, that, I mean, that's a great point how you like, because I mean, that Hamburg hotel room scene is probably my favorite uh, short of all the shorts. Mm. I just found it kind of moved me the most and you just have this character who's kind of an observer, but then once she gets drawn into that music and it's a really great piece of music and then she, you sort of get to understand that where the emotion is in this music, obviously if you listen to it at face value, it sounds very emotional, but when you go, Oh, there's like a, here's a happy movement. And then it goes into this sort of more, uh, uh, downbeat movement and the way that that plays on her face. I just found that that scene is great because they don't really ever interact together or talk to each other. Um, uh, so I found that really fascinating. But that's a great point about also the the, the engineers in the in the booth. They're sort of like, oh, yeah, I think we got something good here. You know, they're just talking. And, and meanwhile, there's a genius in the next room. Yeah. And that we don't always recognize that genius. And I wrote something down that I'm hoping makes sense, but I think it's a good thing to talk about is when we watch a biopic and when we make movies, we're still working within a certain structure and we're still dealing with certain archetypes and story points. How then do you take a human being and reduce them to story tropes? I think it goes both ways because I think we're, I think we're extremely conditioned to watch what's out there and, you know, our life starts to mimic art and the tropes that we see and, and then, of course, we're trying to, I guess it's, it's cyclical in a way. Mm-hmm. We're trying to imitate the art and then art's trying to imitate us. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's, it's also just from storytelling standpoint, it's like it can be some of those tropes can be really ham-fisted. But then when you watch a great film, you kind of don't notice that they ha- they've still done that um mm. and and it, and how well it, it works on you so it's tricky i could see someone watching this and going well you know i didn't feel any there's nothing at stake and what's the you know what was the big confrontation or you know etc but there still are those little i think moments like you get to sort of understand maybe how this started as a child for him and then about his relationships about his troubles with uh, narcotics i guess but it, it, it's just a little bit more vague because, you know, how do we really know? I think it's when it's a real person, it's a little bit different. I'm trying to think of a good, straightforward biopic that does all the tropes that is is done really well. That's good. And it's so rare. And it's uh, it's funny because I went back and watched Chaplin a while ago because mm. my mom was like, oh, this was great. You know, Robert Downey Jr. was robbed. And I watched it and I was unspeakable unspeakably bored like it's just (laughs) so long and the only thing and it's just like it tries to introduce like little sparks of magic but like biting off way more than it can chew and I find most biopics are like that where they try to deify whoever it is they're talking about like they're even walk the line does the same thing you know yeah and you don't you don't get these moments of like of balance, of actual humanity and it's weird that something that contains so many different 
aspects and so many different styles and so many different genres and even certain things that aren't even about him. I mean, he didn't write the Goldberg variations. He just played yeah. them. And yet that's that's being used to define him and his story. You know, I think because you're coming at it from an angle and with a frame that actually is only tangentially related to him, you're able to capture more of a human being. I think absolutely. I mean, that, that's what I find so amazing about this or, or a film like I'm Not There, where you go, okay, I know that this isn't a statement about this is exactly how this person's life went and this is everything that they were about. It's it's like, you know, I have to imagine that they looked at, okay, what, what did, do we know about this person, what archival stuff, what interviews, um, what can we use that way? Obviously, you have to take some license with, um, you know, what really happened to to actually stage some scenes. But still, uh, as a viewer, I, I walk away going, oh, I think I know, I have an impression of Glenn Gould, you know, um, maybe I would read a, a more in-depth biography or something to get all the details. But um, I find that more interesting than than something where it's like, let me show you every chapter of this person's life and, like you say, with Chaplin and and, uh, and turn them into a god. How much should we allow for eccentricity in genius? Mm-hmm. Like, how yeah. much are we willing to put up with? How much should we tolerate? Because he obviously drove a few people around the bend. For sure. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm fascinated by that stuff. Uh, yeah, like I'm a big uh, Stanley Kubrick fan. Mm. Um, uh, an apologist? I, I Would you call yourself an apologist? Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Uh, am I the uh, am I alone in this? Or with, was with Kubrick? Um, I have to admit that I was obsessed, like to the point where my parents were concerned uh, with The Shining when I was in grade twelve. Um, and then I watched the <laughs> documentary that his daughter made and watched all the behind the scenes stuff and what he did to Shelley Duvall. And then I was like. <laughs> I don't think I can watch this movie again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But but I know what you mean. Like, there's some stuff where you're like, oh, I don't want to forgive this sort of thing. But, like, this this thing they made and this thing they did, it, it rises above them. And that's, that's, I think, where we're actually at as a society right now is figuring out how do you separate the art from the artist? Can you? Should you? For sure. And that's a tricky tricky uh subject i think everybody has their threshold i think my threshold is when it becomes criminal what they're Mm -hmm. doing then i'm like yeah okay i could probably step away from this them being a jerk i might oh i might be a little bit more forgiving but maybe that's just my threshold maybe i'm too forgiving i guess no i totally agree i mean i i I likely would not want to uh, work with them or be their assistant or something (laughs) um and you know i work in uh advertising uh, sort of as my day job directing commercials and stuff and um i do hear stories of other you know directors who are just sort of ridiculously crazy personalities and i don't like to work with that like that i'm all about you know no drama and and i like to have you know fun on set but i do look at someone like kubrick's work and i go well just to get that level of quality if that's what it takes and and again, like you say, Danielle, it's not criminal. Um, you know, then by all means, that's just you have to go there. I think there are plenty of but, actresses that still sign up to work with Lars von Trier. Yes, yes, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But then you really question, though. But then, do you think, Becky, that and Matt, that that level of insanity and craziness is needed to even achieve it? Do you really think it's you know, you have to have one with the other? Or could it be achieved through nicer means? 
Well, I think it, it can, I think it certainly can be. You look at some people that I do think, I don't know if we're calling them all geniuses, but when you look at the quality of work of somebody like uh, a Steven Spielberg or even a Wes Anderson or something who obviously is painstaking the work that he must put in to create, let's say, Wes Anderson, these worlds that he makes. Um, but by a, you know every account, he's just a genuinely nice person. Um, so I, I don't think it's it's that. But for some pre- people, if that's the, the way that they have to control their world in order to create, which, you know, I can certainly identify with a bit i'm not that at all but i sometimes go geez if i if i were to just you know hole up somewhere and kind of really focus i could this could be better than it will be do you know what i mean Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do sort of identify with the instinct. I have a, a really great review that was on Rotten Tomatoes that I, I'm kind of fascinated by it because they gave it a four-star review uh, and they said, a really original and well-crafted film with a great performance by Colm Fior. I didn't know a lot about this Gould guy, but I'm really sure that I would want to beat the shit out of him if I met him. I'm not a fan of eccentric <laughs> people who really have no reason to be eccentric other than the fact that they are talented at something. And... <laughs> <laughs> and one that brought me joy uh, because obviously they enjoyed the film, but we're like, yeah, I don't know how I feel about the dude it was about. Um, and <laughs> and two, it's like I think that really is sort of the everyday reaction of of people that aren't dealing with that level of genius because that's why we make movies about these people because that sort of thing is so rare. That little glimpse and that little touch of that little touch of magic, if you will, to go back to Chaplin. You know that they, these people are 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 special in some way or another, and so we're willing to tolerate that just to, just to be close to that sort of behavior or so that, that sort of greatness. I think people also want to see a little bit of eccentricity. I don't think they want to see a biopic where this genius is an absolute normal person, normal in mm-hmm. marks, you know, who's, who's great to his family and great to his audience. And I don't think people even want to see that. They want to see that they're different, that they're somehow special and that's why they're genius. Absolutely. I totally agree. And, 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 it, and it makes me kind of realize that if there's any conflict in the film, it's really just his inner conflict. It's just whatever was going on in, in Glenn Gould's mind that because we, we watch it as if you were going, well, oh, geez, didn't you want to, you know, enjoy some of the fame or have a family or do this or do that? And it's and it's like, no, he just was so focused on, um, you know, maintaining his uh obviously his health, um, but then just getting better and better at what he does and um, eventually uh, retreating. Uh, I, I think you're right. That That's what we find fascinating. Well, apparently he had an intense admiration for Barbara Streisand, and they didn't include that in the movie. So, ah, well, I feel like they really could have gone somewhere with that. That's okay. Another version of A Star is Born, maybe. Yeah, totally. Yeah. All right, guys, we're at favorite moments. I know we've been talking so much about this. We're there already. Matt, how about you? Um, I think it's it's probably the moment that, that uh, I um, had mentioned where the maid is the chambermaid's in his room in Hamburg and she's listening to the recording and she finally sort of, it clicks in her mind and she gets sort of emotionally invested in the, in the music. I found that really, uh, really, really good. How about you, Danielle? You know what? There's just a little wink that uh, I think Francois Girard put in, in his questions with no answers chapter where he has this, uh, this 
French francophone interviewer and she's asking all these long questions about what he thinks about his audience and about the whole concert hall and then the translator translates and it's uh, just a tad off mm-hmm. and a tad incorrect and I was like oh I think that's a little wink from <laughs> but um Becky, what is your favorite moment? And then I do have a very specific question for both of you guys afterwards. Oh, perfect. Okay. Um, so my personal favorite moment is when all the interviewers are firing questions at him because I love it. Uh, and this also introduced me to Gail Garnett, who I did not know who she was, but now I am desperately in love with her. She's the interviewer who's asking all the questions about romance. Um, <laughs> she was a pop star from New Zealand in the 60s. What? Yeah, and she has uh, a bunch of like songs that came out that were really big deals. Some of them were on the Muppets. Um, she was in this awesome movie called Mad Monster Party from the '60s, which looks bananas. Like the whole thing is just she's just my new favorite human being. So this film introduced me to her, and now I'm very happy. So <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> totally, it's all a tangential learning. Uh, Danielle, what's your question? You know, when I watch this film. Sometimes I think of like things that are relatively kind of similar or in the modern modern day, my gosh, not that long ago, but things that are kind of similar in terms of style and in terms of what they're trying to do. And I found that this film was kind of similar in, in what they were trying to do with Beyonce's Lemonade and her kind of visual uh, film that went along with her soundtrack. And what she was trying to do, because she did chapters as well, and it was kind of telling this story. Granted, it's a lot more heightened than Mm -hmm. what this is. But my question to you two is, 32 films about Glenn Gould or Beyonce's Lemonade, which one would you watch? Oh, jeez. Wow. (laughs) They're about the same time in length. Wow. Oh, that's tough. Um, Becky, have you, have you seen Beyonce's Lemonade? I have, in fact, seen all of Beyonce's Lemonade because I am a millennial. So <laughs> I, I made my choice. I just think they're so, like, I get where you're coming from, Danielle, but I just think they're so different culturally, like, in terms of their impact mm-hmm. and their intent. I think one is celebrating something, whereas the other one is commenting on something quite viciously. Um mm-hmm. And I think that, yeah, that's where it's the challenge. You know what? I'm going to have to go with Queen Bay. Nice. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Here's why. Just because I think it's, although I do love the cleverness and the intelligence and the brightness in 32 short films about Glenn Gould and that I've never seen anything like this before. um, I think there is an underlying emotion and a viciousness and a drive in Lemonade that this one is missing. I almost feel like this one could have the heat turned up just a hint more and I would have loved it just that much more. It would have set me more on fire. Beige sets me on fire. I can't help it. Nice one. Um, yeah, I have not seen Beyonce's Lemonade. Um, uh, I feel like I've probably seen bits and pieces. Um, but uh, yeah, I go Glenn Gould. I think just something again, like I said, watching it again today, it just resonates with me. There's something sort of that reminds me of the way TV is going these days where mm. you, um, it reminded me of like, oh, this could be like a, either an episode of something or, or a, a show itself. Um, but where we see these great shows now that can really take time and have be nonlinear and kind of weird and different and experimental, um, it kind of reminded me of that. And just for some reason, I was so impressed with how 
kind of contemporary it felt even though there's moments where it feels a little dated or arched uh, obviously but um yeah i, I well, liked it don mckeller's having the best time in that wig right <laughs> he, <laughs> he sure is he shows up yeah. and he was like okay i'm gonna do one day but i want to wear that wig <laughs> <laughs> talk as fast as i can exactly oh and of course norm mclaren we didn't even talk about norm mclaren uh there's a yes. norm mclaren spot in here uh people who want to know more about norm mclaren should go listen to our norm mclaren episode because adam wilson knows everything about him and that one's great and i'm not even gonna try uh, <laughs> amazing <laughs> perfect so matthew how do people find your work um you can check out uh, my website it's mattatkinsondirector.com um or you can see uh the film that we just released it's uh, called room for rent it may be still playing on the airplanes um but uh, it was just released uh, this week on crave in canada yeah. and i believe netflix in the u.s but uh yeah, watch it on Crave or watch it on iTunes or uh, on demand. It's literally everywhere. It's so good, nice. guys. It's so good. It's so funny. Uh, and that's just not not just because you're here. It's great. Uh, Dan- oh, thank you. Danielle, what's up with you? You can reach me at my website, www.danielleao.com, or you can check out my Instagram at dannyao for some really irrelevant kind of photos of food and plants <laughs> or uh actually no that's it don't contact me any other ways that's, <laughs> i think that's about it don't don't stalk me you just want people uh, sliding yeah. into your dms yeah i don't don't send me personal messages unless it's really relevant to you know, the vibe I'm trying to set up with my Instagram. But Becky, how do we reach you? Uh, you can find me on the Twitters at the Shrimpton. That's the masculine the Shrimpton over there. You can find me on Instagram, Caridia underscore extravaganza. Uh, Cam, you can follow his adventures as he goes to the BAFTAs and the Indie Spirit Awards uh, at at iCram, where you can uh, watch his slow descent into madness as he attempts to watch everything that is nominated for a BAFTA and Indie Spirit. Guys, <laughs> he's got opinions. Uh, go follow him over there. And uh, you can also catch me on my new show from the Globe and Mail, Globe Studios, and Microsoft. It's called AI Meets World, and I'm over there, and I'm talking to people who are way smarter than I am about really cool, really fun stuff and building the future. I think that's just about everything. So, guys, do you want to go get a moose head? Let's do it. Yes. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.